Welcome to the Synergist Podcast, the most man-centered theology podcast on the internet by God's providence. I'm Thomas, and I am here with my co-host, Seth Rogen. I hate you so much. <laughs> Just kidding, it's Nick Quit, but uh, you do have a story about that, don't you? Uh, yes, I do. Alright, so when I grow my hair out, which by means I uh, I don't cut my hair, I get a really poofy, really curly, like, afro-ishy thing. Not a true afro, but just like a, a thing of hair on my head. And it's really curly, and since Seth Rogen has that, allegedly, uh, I get comparisons <laughs> all the time. So... Uh, so, for example, my wife and I, I'm, see, the worst part is I'm being a really good husband during this thing. Like, I'm actually being a good, like, submissive husband, yielding to my wife and all that stuff. But, you know, <laughs> my wife decides she has to put this on Twitter. Anyway, all right, so we're taking care of her car at Fuller. I'm putting oil in it, and I'm like, all right, well, you need to go put gas in it because you're on empty. So we drive to the gas station, and I look like trash. I'm wearing, I don't know if I'm wearing shoes. Yeah, I'm wearing shoes. I think I'm wearing shoes. <laughs> Like, but it's like nine o'clock at night, and I'm exhausted. It's like it's been a long day. It's like I, I just don't care how I look. I've got my ratty uh, sweatshirt on. My hair is just a big old mess. I haven't combed it or done anything like that. There's no product, so it's just poofing everywhere. And I got the beard, and I'm just. I've got one a uh, one track mind. Put gas in this car and go back to my apartment so I can sleep. And so we stop there. I put gas. You know, I put the uh, the thing in the car, and it starts filling it with gas. And I'm like, I'm gonna go inside and go gonna go buy something real quick. So I go inside. And my wife says, the car that pulled up behind us at the gas station, the people got out, and uh, the guy walked over and said something along the lines of, is that Seth Rogen? <laughs> As I'm walking inside, I didn't hear this, I didn't see it, and my wife, because she has no clue who that is, just was like, I don't know, no, that's that's my husband. <laughs> you know, kind of stuff. But And so this guy thought I was Seth Rogen, and when I came back out, it makes sense, because I got a really weird vibe from him, because he's looking at me like, I think I know who you are. And I'm just just sitting there going, like, I'm just putting gas in my car, like, I'm just an associate pastor at a Baptist church, like, I have no idea, like, what you're looking for me. And he just kind of looked at me, and I was like, oh, this is kind of weird. Then I got in the car, and Allison turns to me and goes, so who's Seth Rogen? (laughs) And literally my heart sank, because I've gotten that probably half a dozen times in my life. And so I just told her this, and then she decided to put it on Twitter, and that is why Thomas is a jerk and put this at the beginning of the Synergist episode. So, yep, that's the story. I mean, you know that this is going to be a recurring thing now, right? Um, well, I mean, you might as well have fun at my expense. So I'm <laughs> like, whatever makes for good podcasting, like I'm fine with. Are we gonna Are we gonna get to see a picture of this? Are we gonna get to see a, like a Seth Rogen? Can we do like a your face and then a Seth Rogen face like together and and let people vote on it? I mean, it'd be a really handsome photo if you blended us, but only because of me. But <laughs> I don't think my hair is gonna be this long for like long enough for me to do that. So it's one of those where it's like every time I get the comparison, it's like all right, that means it's time to cut this thing off. So <laughs> and to his credit, he's lost a ton of weight apparently recently, so he looks okay. But I mean. Have you seen me? Like, oh my gosh, this is just, the comparison I don't see. Like, this has come from a guy who once had a woman come up and be like, you look like Christian Bale. My first thought was, yeah, take that, Seth Rogen. <laughs> All right, well, let's get down to business. Uh, in, in this episode, we're going to continue the project we began last episode that we're calling A Christian Theology. Uh, so if you haven't listened to that yet, go back and listen to episode 15, uh, Listen to that first, and then come back to this one because we're gonna. What we're gonna do in this one is we're gonna explain sort of why we 
did what we did in the last one. Um, but before we dive into that, we have uh, some other business to take care of. Now, Nick, I understand that you're giving up beer for Lent. Is that right? So, yes, uh, I am giving up al- all alcohol for Lent. Ooh. So not just beer. It's like I, I'm not even, you know, allowing myself the Lord's beverage and having red wine. So, oh wow! Well, wow. I should I should be careful. I shouldn't. I will be have. I will not be partaking in the Lord's favorite grapefruit, you know, grape drink. So, because we all know the Lord, you know, prefers Welch's to uh, <laughs> to a pot. Sure. But you know, sure. of course, of course. And so, yes, I basically decided I'm giving up uh, uh, alcohol because, well, early too, because I want to get you know used to it. I want to get off it, and I kind of want to get my mind right before Lent begins. So I don't want to just stop like cold turkey, like eating and you know drinking stuff. You know, you know what I mean. I just I want to take the time to actually reflect on why I'm doing it. So it's one of those. I described it to a friend of mine and my sister actually, as what is something you really like that you probably could stand to not like so much. And I was like. My first thought instantly was beer. Then I'm like, well, that says a lot about me. That that was my first thing I thought about. <laughs> and so I basically said, well, for Lent, I'm going to give up all alcohol and uh, see how it goes. So far, I haven't had a beer in like probably two weeks just as a way of kind of getting into the spirit of Lent. But, okay. okay. So I'm feeling, I'm feeling pretty good about it. All right. So just, just so we're clear, we're recording this episode before Lent officially begins, mm-hmm. but we're going to be releasing it after Lent has started, but you're still not drinking anything today, right? I'm drinking uh, lavender uh, citrus tea. La- okay. All right. Lavender. Hey, this is like our very first episode where I was sick and drinking tea and you were drinking beer. Yeah. And uh, I'm not quite even sick. I just feel like it's one of those like if I – if things go south, I'll know why. I'll, I'll, I'll have known that I was getting sick, but it's not quite at that point. So, And lavender is just awesome. I don't know why more people don't like lavender. Lavender is just <laughs> the miracle. Well, uh, Nick, in Romans, Paul tells us that we should avoid doing things that might cause our brothers or sisters to stumble. Uh, so in the spirit of brotherly love, uh, for any episodes that we record during Lent, in in solidarity, I will not be drinking a single beer. You know, oh, that, that, thanks, man. That's, that's really thoughtful of you. But you, you don't have to do that. Lent is, is, of course, as you know, a time of personal reflection and, and solace. And as a Baptist, I'm, all in fa- I'm not in favor of telling others what to do. I'm actually going to be drinking two beers. Wait, what? Yeah, see, I don't want our listeners to stumble by only hearing one beer review. So I'm going to pick up your slack while you're doing this during Lent, and I'm going to take one for the team and drink an extra one during our episode. How very thoughtful of you. You are welcome. Uh, In light of that, hold on just a second. Oh, it hurts. It hurts so much. Oh, it hurts. Oh, you see what I've got today. This is I another one Paps. from... I hope it's like Paps Blue Ribbon or something. See, this is this is another one from Taxman. They're still on sale. Um, their their uh, slogan is Belgian-inspired, American-crafted. This particular one is called... Coffee Vanilla Qualified. It's a Belgian-style quadruple ale with coffee and vanilla. So it's super dark and thick and very smooth. And it's like it's like coffee vanilla beer. It is just... Oh, it is so... Hold on, hold on. Oh, yeah. Really, really good. You can't see it, but my eye is actually twitching, and I can't seem to make it stop. Like, it just... It will not stop. I, I don't... 
I, I don't know what to do right now. I guess I'll just drink this tea and dream about better times. <laughs> but see, at this point, I'm just being more holy than you are because I'm actually giving up something I love for Lent while you're just reveling in it, you sinful, awful non-Baptist. <laughs> Sorry, f- folks, the venom will come out in this episode, just so you know, but I'm actually quite happy that he's having two because better two than none. <laughs> Alright, so, in our last episode, we asked two rather basic questions. What is theology, and where do we start? Right. Uh, And the answer to the first question is pretty straightforward. Theology is the study of God. Yep. The answer to the second question, as we all kind of realize, is a little complicated. Uh, in a broad sense, we must start with Revelation. Uh, that is how, not, not the book of Revelation. That Don't start with the book of Revelation. That, <laughs> there's no way to really get to it if you start there. But we're talking about... Unless you want nightmares. Unless, unless you, want you want nightmares or really good sci-fi. So just depend, depending on how you read it. Uh, how, but we're talking about how God relates and displays God's self to us. You know, how, how God reveals God's self to us. But there are, of course, different forms of Revelation. And we talked about some of them in the last episode. Uh, we have made and will continue to make the case that we should start with Jesus because we believe that Jesus is the most clear and most complete self-revelation of God. And this is, I believe, and I think Thomas believes this as well, this revelation that Jesus is the self-revelation of God is the central tenet of God's apocalyptic activity as depicted in the New Testament. If you want to know what God is like, you kind of got to know what Jesus is like. Yes, Exactly. Uh, But that leads to sort of a potential problem, because everything that we know about Jesus comes to us from, quote-unquote, the Bible, right? Um, And so there are some who would argue that before we can talk about Jesus, we have to talk about the Bible and prove its inspiration and authority. Um, And I know that some people make those arguments, one, because I used to make similar arguments, and I now hear similar arguments. Uh, The interesting thing is, though, lots of atheists actually try to make the very same argument in an attempt to dismiss the the historical Jesus. Well, they say, the only document, and obviously we can't take the Bible as a historical document, uh, and so sometimes both Christians and atheists say that you have to start with the Bible to learn about Jesus. But in this episode, we're going to explain why... That argument is not actually true, and why we can confidently begin with Jesus, even without having a coherent doctrine of scripture or inspiration or anything like that. Exactly. So in this episode, uh, we're going to be a little more apologetic in nature. Wait, why are we apologizing? I'm not sorry about starting with Jesus. (laughs) Funny guy. Usually Seth Rogen is the one making all the terrible jokes. (laughs) Uh, apologetics is the practice of defending or explaining a specific position. It can be about defending a political or theological idea, uh, and usually with the goal of bet of presenting it in the best or as the most encompassing idea amidst competing ideas. This is the one idea that you want to follow against other competing ideas. Uh, and we're going to be defending and explaining the idea that the stories about Jesus we find in the New Testament are reliable and trustworthy, even apart from divine revelation. That doesn't mean we're dismissing divine revelation far from it. Uh, his name is Jesus, so you can't really dismiss him. <laughs> but the, the point is, even if you don't accept you know, certain things like that, you can say uh, that the stories about Jesus that we find in the New Testament, as I said, are reliable and trustworthy. Okay, 
but just so we're clear, right? Because we we're, we're going to get some tweets for this or something. We're not saying that we don't believe that scripture is divinely inspired, right? Right. We're just going to argue that even if someone doesn't believe they are inspired, they can believe that the stories are historically historically reliable. Like I'll even go further. If someone wants to, you know, out conservative juke me, I'll, I'll say I believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. I, I believe in the inerrancy of God's word. His name is Jesus. But <laughs> it, but still, like I'm willing to affirm like those sorts of things. But even if someone doesn't affirm those, you can still look at the the New Testament as a historically reliable uh, as a historically reliable book. Okay, so in other words, just to be clear, what we're saying is that from a purely historical standpoint, we believe the evidence suggests that Jesus actually existed, that he preached about the kingdom of God, that he was crucified by Pontius Pilate, and uh, even that he was resurrected, right? Right. And so just purely, you know, we're talking about pure history. It's something everyone can agree. But there, there's something that you and I mentioned last episode that kind of will come out a little more here. Um, we need to discuss what I call the myth of neutrality, right? The idea that we have no inherent bias or skin in the game or what have you. Um, history, in, at least in my eyes, is not a neutral phenomenon. Events occur in time to specific people or cultures or groups, and it gets recorded. Depending on culture, this may be an oral or a verbal history, something that they is spoken and preserved that way, or maybe a written history, or even then the lines get blurry between oral and written history as you get in the Old Testament, especially in the New Testament. Um, but th the idea we need to really consider is doing away with the idea that I am a purely neutral person in history. It's like, and I don't, and I think that's something that once we kind of talk about that, then a lot of the questions a lot of people fuss about kind of go away. Right. So, so objectivity is sort of a myth. We can't approach it completely objectively. The, the more we're able to identify our own biases, the more we're able to at least recognize how they might influence the way that we come to a text. Right, exactly. So history is a series of events, right? Uh, that, but, but those events are not we, – we, we don't have – nobody recorded them on a video camera. We can't go back and, and look at them. Um, even if we could, that was taken from a specific angle. So history mm -hmm. is a series of events, but it's a series of events that's always communicated through the perspective either of the victors or the witnesses or, or sometimes just the survivors, right? Yep, exactly. And so when we approach, I mean, this can be anyone, we as a as an atheist, we or as a Christian, we or as a Hindu, we, when we approach the New Testament with certain questions in mind, we're not always going to get the answers we're looking for. You know, for example, if we approach the New Testament with the question, how can I fix my car? It's running a little funny. We're going to be disappointed because the New Testament's not written with that sort of thing in mind. And I think in essence, what we're talking about is it is all about what you bring to Scripture with you. So my point in mentioning this is simply to yes, thinking about better ways of approaching A highlighter, scripture. right? A highlighter, yep. And all in all, history is to be read critically. You don't just accept something, but... And that means scripture doesn't get a pass either. We, we treat scripture uh, within the realms of what we might call critical historiography. We take scripture seriously. Um, but you and I both believe that scripture does, pa of course, pass a critical mark of, of being historical and reliable. I mean, otherwise, if, if we didn't believe this, or at least if I didn't believe this, I'm in the wrong business. Right. And that's what we're going to be talking about. Why, as historians, we can believe scripture not just as Christians or theists. We don't believe it just because... It's a, a holy document, but we believe it because it's historically reliable. Um, and, and 
if you're wrong about this, at least you have a backup plan, right? You can always go back to making generally unfunny movies. You know, if we got a Patreon supporter for every time someone cracked wise about me looking like Seth Rogen in my life, you and I would be able to do this full time. <laughs> and also, Knocked Up was really funny. Like, you, you need to, like, chill with that. All right, all right, that's fine, that's fine. I I, I actually, I kind of like Seth Rogen. I think he's pretty good. Um, his, uh, his He has his moments. I'll give him that. He, he testified before Congress a couple years ago about something. It was really poignant, actually. He was, like, very well-spoken and, you know, thought-provoking. Anyway, beside the point. Um, so... <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I'm not. I'm not knocking Seth Rogen. I, I, I like Seth Rogen, and, and I like you. So, well, um, two, two for one. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, this reminds me. Um, if you haven't done so already, hop on over to pay. Uh, I. Why can't I say it? Pa- Patreon. There you go. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I look at that word in it. It just every single time. Patreon. Hop on over to Patreon when you're done listening to this episode or any episode. Um, and if you don't mind, just chip in a little bit. Every gift goes a long way and it helps us to do uh, bigger and better things. And we, we appreciate all of that. Amen and amen. Seth Rogen's got to eat. <clears throat> so <laughs> ju- just to recap uh, what, what we're going through. Uh, history is written primarily, you could say exclusively, but let's be a little more generous, gen- is primarily written by victors witnesses and survivors and the new testament is isn't any different than that so when we come to the gospels and their historicity we can see all three groups of people at play Uh, without the victory of jesus's resurrection you don't have a story worth telling without witnesses you don't have anyone to tell the story in the first place without survivors you don't have anyone to continue preaching the story so you kind of need all three of these or at least the new testament uses all three types of people in this and we'll tackle the notion of victors later on um, but the witnesses aspect and the survivors aspect are a primary element for even the formation of the new testament you don't have a new testament without witnesses and survivors so right right and so in asking these better questions we actually come to see that the gospels are not only a a an accurate picture of what life was like in the first century. Um, we, we have that. Scholars call that, I'm going to give you a, a $4 word here, verisimilitude. Uh, they accurately depict what life was like in the first century. But not only that, the Gospels are saturated with stories of men and women who are telling their story about Jesus. And so a, a rather basic interpretive question is, well, who told Mark or Luke or Matthew or John these stories that got written down? And as Richard Bachem has argued quite convincingly, the Gospels were written within living memory of the event they recount. Um, in other words, the reason why we have people who are named in the Gospels, people who are healed or talked to, uh, because if somebody wants to verify something, they could just go and ask them. Uh, some more skeptical scholars will, will point out that the gospel writers may have been educated and wealthy compared to the, the early Jewish followers of Jesus. But, but even then, that's not entirely accurate because wealth can be subjective in certain agrarian contexts. And, and even more than that, wealth and the means to travel and record would be a net benefit for an author seeking to record, uh, the story of Jesus. So Nick, I want to jump in for just a second here. Um, we haven't talked about this before and I'm going to put you on the spot, sure. but, um, I, so my, my more conservative, maybe fundamentalist side is going to show here. Um, but I tend to take pretty seriously that the, the gospel, the, the names that the gospels bear were actually written by those people. Like, I kind of think that Matthew had something to do with Matthew and, um, 
you know, I kind of believe that Mark was really written by Mark as the memoirs of Peter. Are are you there or not so much? I, I don't really have a strong feeling either way. Uh, I, I don't see that being, uh, for lack of a better word, a lot of the New Testament authors, or at least the gospel writers, don't make their gospel about them, right? So it's not as if they're sitting there thinking, I'm telling my story. It's like, no, I'm telling our story, this collective story. So in my mind, it doesn't have to be written. Mark didn't have to write Mark, for example. Um, but I do think I have no reason to disbelieve that Mark didn't write Mark or that John, uh, the traditional authorship of the jo uh, Gospel of John, um, and stuff like that. So I have really no problem with that. And in fact, the, the, and my conservative side is showing out a little bit too. It's not that I'm a conservative because I think they necessarily have better arguments, but I look at a lot of, we'll say more liberal or, or liberal scholarship. And that's not a pejorative. That's how it's just generally classified between conservative and liberal scholarship. Right. Um, I don't find liberal arguments concerning the gospels compelling. Uh, a lot of it is based on, uh, not even inference on, well, this had to be this way. And I'm like, well, I think that I think the Gospels are really defy a lot of easy categorization. I don't like kind of, and you and I have talked about this, putting them into a preconceived bubble that fits what I want to see. Right. You know what I mean? Right. And so right. I have no problem with Mark writing Mark or John writing John. Um, I do think, and you and I have talked about this as well. I do think Paul wrote everything attributed to him, um, excluding I think interpolations and stuff like that. There are sure. some of those in Paul, um, sure. and I do have questions about the pastorals. Um, but at the end of the day, um, the only document. I really struggle with is second Peter. Um, but even then I don't have an issue accepting it. It's just, you know, working out the nuts and bolts of that. And so, yeah, for me, the, the authorship question, um, if it's about the author, if it's, and, and I think you and I would agree with on this too, the idea, uh, there's a difference between, uh, the gospel writers and Paul in terms of what authorship means. Right. So, yeah, I don't know if you want to say more about that, but that, that's kind of where I'm coming from. I, I would I would agree, except for the fact that we know that one of the reasons that these particular gospels were chosen out of a host of other gospels, and we'll get into this in a later episode, is because the early church believed that they were actually written by the people that that um, are that they're attributed to. That so, in other words, the reason Matthew made it was because they believed it was written by Jesus's, um, you know, disciple Matthew. The reason they yeah. accepted Mark was because they believed that it was the memoirs of Peter. Uh, they accepted Luke because he was a companion with Paul, right? They accepted John because he was an apostle. And, and I don't, like like you, I don't think that the liberal arguments against that are strong enough to disprove it. Um, I think in many cases, these early Christians probably knew a lot more than we know, sort of knew what they were talking about. Um, and, and in a lot of cases, I think it makes sense, it, which which even even without that, right, even without that, and we're going to get into this, these documents are still historically reliable, but with that and with the good reason to believe that they were actually written by eyewitnesses or people who interviewed eyewitnesses, um, that just adds to their credibility, and I think the argument for that is strong. So sorry for that sidetrack, but I thought we'd talk about it. No, I, I think it's it's worthwhile, and for those who want a, a more scholarly uh, work on this, you can read uh, the the. Uh, scholar we mentioned earlier, Richard Balkum, his book Jesus and the Eyewitnesses is came out in a second edition, and it's even better. So it's it's he's influenced me quite a bit, and he's not himself. I mean, he's conservative, but he doesn't make a name for himself by being conservative. That's just kind of where he lands on the evidence, and it's it's a very fair book, and a lot of even centrist or moderate or even liberal scholars have found it to be really good. So I'd, I commend Jesus and the eyewitnesses to you if you want to go in depth more here, but we, we're kind of continuing that train. Um, when we talk about people or witnesses or even um, people who were healed by Jesus, um, we're talking, I think, about 
eyewitnesses or at least ben, uh, beneficiaries of Jesus's uh living ministry. So, for example, we think, of course, the famous examples of Jairus's daughter in the, in the Synoptic Gospels. We think of Peter's mother-in-law. Uh, we think of Bartimaeus. Um, and, a lot of the, and a lot of the healings and exorcisms are specific people that are named. Of course, not every name is mentioned, but it is significant that some are. And so, healings and exorcism and miracles, weird events, that was all common in the ancient world. They didn't have a problem accepting those sorts of things. Um, and so when one considers, you know, for example, uh, and we're talking about the reliability aspect, one considers the ancient economy in the land of Jesus, Josephus, a Jewish historian who lived just after Jesus, like 37 to 100 AD, confirms many of the stories and events in the Gospels, or at least the, the stuff that was in the air, that was in uh, ordinary daily life, that the city, the major cities are inland, that the Romans often crucified people, uh, that the economy was largely agrarian. And so, hence, the fishermen, the farmers, the tax collectors are historical realities of the ancient world, and they're they're true of uh, Jesus's of the Synoptic Gospels. And so, the New Testament is, I think, when you look at just kind of the nuts and bolts of it, how it depicts daily life, uh, they're remarkably consistent with what we know from other sources. And it may seem dumb to say, but Romans owning slaves, for example, was a reality, and the Gospels depict that when Jesus heals the Roman servant. And so it's just little things like that. You think it's a great miracle story, and it is, but it also just—it's a basic depiction of here's what everyday life was like in Jesus's world. Um, and as such, the the weird world, the weird world of the New Testament looks just like the weird world of roaming Greece. And there's not a whole lot of separation to be made there. I mean, there's cultural differences, but you can't just kind of bifurcate between Rome and or you know the Roman Empire and Jesus. There's a lot of intermingling and and blurriness there. And the world is weird, and it's still weird pretty now. I mean, how do you explain <laughs> modern politics? <laughs> right, right, right. Well, what you're getting at there is that that big word we mentioned earlier, verisimilitude, where mm -hmm. the the Gospels depict what life was really like in first century Judea, and that gives credibility to them as historical documents. Mm -hmm. um, and not only that, uh, some of the most, one of the most important elements of the story is is the named women in the resurrection, right? All of the Marys. <laughs> um, yeah, Mary yeah, some translations put the other Mary. Like there's yeah, so right? many Marys. <laughs> yeah, so many Marys, all these Marys. Um, but Mary Magdalene and, and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. Um, and then the other unnamed women. And so in these stories of the resurrection, the empty tomb, we have these women who are the first witnesses of the empty tomb, the first, uh, you know, witnesses, the first preachers of the resurrection. And this in itself is, um, gives credibility to the gospels because as we know in the ancient world, women were not regarded as credible witnesses. And so for them to be, recorded in the Gospels as being the first witnesses, that actually lends credibility to their story because that's not something that you would just make up if you were making up a story. Um, it's what scholars call the criterion of embarrassment, right? You don't, when people make up stories, they don't typically make up stories that are embarrassing about themselves. They make up stories that make themselves look good. And so when you see the women who they didn't believe to be credible witnesses were the first witnesses, you know, that's sort of embarrassing for them and it lends credibility to the story. Um, and just to add to that, you know, for us here at the Synergist, Nick, we uh, we believe that the testimony of women is a great reminder of God's respect and voice, uh, God's respect for the voice of women. 
um, and we're proud to sit in traditions that affirmed and continue to affirm women's voices about the resurrected Jesus. Amen and amen. And just in addition to that, this is a little off the cuff, but I preached a, a sermon a while back um, on Luke 2, you know, the, the story where Jesus gets lost. And uh, as a child, it's the only one of the few stories we have of Jesus uh, as as a teenager. I think it's the only story we have of Jesus as a teenager in the New Testament, and at least in the was, canonical gospels, right? Yeah, in the canonical gospels, <laughs> yeah, in Luke's gospel. And I, I was sitting there and I'm, I'm preaching this, and I stopped, and I kind of just stopped and looked at my at, at my con- at the congregation in front of me, and I said, "This is one of those stupid little stories. It's an everyday kind of life thing. There's nothing special about it. Jesus doesn't." you know, turn clay pigeons into living pigeons. He doesn't do <laughs> cartwheels in the air. Like he just, and, but I was kind of sitting here at the very end of the, 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 the section, it said, and Mary treasured these things in her heart. And I was sitting there listening to that or thinking about that. And I was, it, it just struck me. I was like, you don't have this story about Jesus without Mary remembering all the stuff that she went through. You know, Mary had to remember this story for, she had to treasure this story so it could be given to us as a treasure to tell us about what the early life of Jesus was like. And so it's one of those things without the voice of women, you don't have some of the greatest stories in the New Testament, as well as the greatest story in the New Testament, the, the resurrection of Jesus. And so it's one of those things. I don't know. It's it's one of those things that you and I talked about this uh, when an early Christian or an early heretic or a critic of Christianity said Christianity Christianity is a, a religion of slaves, women, and children. My first thought is, heck yeah, it is. <laughs> right. Kind of you know that that's great. You know. Right. Um, and so there is that kind of element to it that Jesus uh, that even this the egalitarian impulse in earliest Christianity was just on full display here, um, and, uh, and and it, it, that didn't that didn't add right they didn't they didn't make up women because it gave their story credibility right in the ancient world it, it actually would have dampened their credibility but for us that means that it's even more true which just testifies to uh the goodness and the the egalitarianness of god right exactly and it, at the at the end of the day it's one of those things i kind of find funny about a lot of apologists who are very patriarchal and stuff like that i'm like you do realize one of the greatest arguments for the reliability of the new testament is the egalitarian impulse of the new testament beer, beer. One, i, I would things. i would cheers you but you don't have a beer well uh, yeah and i finished my tea um <laughs> but just, just we want to make that point because i i find it quite profound personally yes. And existentially. Yes. So um, in addition to various name sources like the women uh, and the historical particularities about the economy and just ordinary life as a farmer, the, the manuscript evidence of the New Testament is also really, really important. Um, Thomas, why are manuscripts important? <clears throat> Sorry, I was uh, I was enjoying some of my non-Lenten beer there. <laughs> Thomas, I, I swear on my vegan pita bread, I will. Oh, that's you. right. You gave up meat, too, didn't you? Yeah. Oh, man. Good for you. No beer, no meat. I'm really proud of you. Not everyone can do that. Thomas, the, the knife is already in my back. The least you could do is twist it a little bit. Hold on. Let me take a sip. Oh, uh, the twist is good. Ah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but seriously, we've got thousands of New Testament manuscripts. There are ancient texts and fragments written on papyrus. Uh, although there were some written on parchment, but, but what's really important in determining the historical reliability of the New Testament is how close we are to the original source. 
Right. The earliest manuscript that we have is a fragment from a codex. A codex is a fancy word that means book, um, with writing on both sides. And, and this fragment is called P52. Um, remind me, and we'll uh, we'll tweet out a picture of it when we release this episode. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's about the size of a credit card, and it has parts of John chapter 18, verses 31 through 33 on it. And scholars have dated this fragment to somewhere between 100 and 150 AD, or CE, depending what your dating system is, uh, with it likely being even earlier than that. It, this means two things. First, it means that the Gospel of John is probably written earlier than we like to think, and second, it means that we have a written record of Jesus from about 70 years after his death. This is remarkable. This is remarkable. And what's really remarkable is that it survived. I mean, 70 years after his death, I mean, who, who knows? And that's at 100. You don't think about how transportation works, how uh, time to uh, get the story together works in terms of time. So who knows? It's probably even earlier than that. Um, but in, no, in, in other words, no other piece of literature from antiquity can boast of that sort of tenacity or that sort of closeness to the original source. Um, because of the work of textual critics, uh, those are scholars who are experts in ancient manuscripts and are kind of in charge of reconstructing what the original text of scripture or any ancient document said. Kind of they compare manuscripts and say, okay, this lines up here, this doesn't line up here. And they kind of try to figure out how close that we are to the original text. Um, we can see a really clear line of connection between the first century and our present day. Um, because of the manuscript data and the rather clear uh, attestation of early witnesses to Jesus' life in the Gospels, as we talked about earlier, I think we're on really firm ground to assert that the, the New Testament is historically reliable. Um, to be sure, there are differences, and I, I would recommend uh, another book that's Mike Ly- Michael Lycona's Why Are There Differences in the Gospels? It's published by Oxford, Oxford University Press, which is no slouch as a publisher. Um, <laughs> however, no, hold on ahead. just a second. Yeah. Um, just to emphasize what you're saying here, the we have documents of the New Testament that are closer to the actual events than basically any other event in history, right? Any other major biography or historical figure does not even come close. And so, and so there are there are things that we absolutely believe to be true. Say Caesar crossing the Rubicon, right? Yep. Um, we, we we believe this happened historically, and yet there is nowhere near the kind of manuscript evidence for that event like there is for the the events in the New Testament, right? Correct. Okay, just making sure that that that's clear. Yeah, and so it it doesn't mean we disbelieve the other works. It just means when you've got this wealth of evidence you kind of go, all right, this is pretty good. This is, if you're a Christian, this is a blessing. If you're a scholar, it's a playground. It's just, you're just happy. <laughs> um, but However, at the end of the day, um, we're back to the same issue I raised earlier, Thomas. Which is, it's all about what we bring to scripture, and that's not a highlighter pen. Yes, exactly. So just getting to the, the nuts and bolts of interpretive practices, or what we call hermeneutics, how we interpret or understand something. Um, if someone assumes or believe that Jesus, that when Jesus fed 5,000 people, that that can't be true because miracles say can't happen, well, then they're inclined to think that such an event is false. You can't feed 5,000 people on, was it, seven loaves and two fish, or however many it is. I just pre- I just went through that in Bible study. <laughs> I forget the exact number. But it's one of those things you just kind of look at it and go, that, that's at least unverifiable or false because we know those things can't happen. Um, and you and I have talked about this already in a bit. Um, my response, put very shortly, is that we live in a fundamentally weird world 
And if God exists, and as I believe he does, then weird things are bound to happen, especially in history. We have these things called historical anomalies. Weird things happen. Um, but when we have a, a book like the New Testament that is this well attested, we might say written and composed and published by a poor and fragile and persecuted religious minority group in Rome or around <laughs> the Roman Empire, we might want to take it seriously and not be so, we might say, impulsively dismissive of it. Where We don't have the privilege of being 2,000 years after the event and suddenly having the privilege of being dismissive of something. It's one of those things... Um, kind of check your interpretive privilege, you know, just like <laughs> respect, you know, just show respect. And this is for any document. I'm not talking sure, sure. outside the new Testament, you know, show respect for the original source and not, and don't just go, well, I believe this can't happen. It's like, well, who are you? <laughs> you know, sure. like, you know, you, you could have a PhD, DD, who cares? It's take, take, take these sorts of things seriously as, and we'll all be better like historians for that. I think. Right. We've got a term for that, for people who, who say, well, well, that couldn't have happened, right? We call that epistemic elitism. Hmm. <laughs> if you think that something supernatural can't happen, you know, that just, that just means that you have, you're, you're as epistemically elite or, or close-minded as anybody else. Um, anyway, not to get on a, on a rant there. Um, <laughs> so what, what you're saying is that we have both good evidence to believe that the New Testament is historically reliable and that we should be willing to be open to claims about supernatural events, right? Yes. Uh, this would apply, as I mentioned, to any ancient text, any and to any religious or non-religious historian. Anybody, if you're a breathing human being with eyes and a brain, <laughs> you can read this and you can think about it. And it just means we need to take such claims seriously. I agree. You want to know why? Because this beer is supernatural. Well, I can't verify it, but your claim does sound reliable. <laughs> Jerk. <laughs> so in summation of, of this point, yes, the New Testament is reliable in how it depicts history, how it depicts Jewish daily life, and how it tells the story of Jesus. And I might say undue skepticism and an uncritical edge, and that can be uh, religious or not, are both, I would say, detrimental to reading scripture or any ancient document well. Um, and this is important as we move into the more important, the, the most important question about the resurrection of Jesus. And as such, uh, historians and theologians have every right to examine miracle, claim, miracle claims and weird tales. Um, just because we have cell phones and fast food and electronic cigarettes doesn't mean the world is any less weird. <laughs> Very true. Uh, so in thinking about scripture... We inevitably come down to the issue of presuppositions. What do I presuppose when I read scripture or any ancient document? Um, for some, every word is inspired and perfect and there are no difficulties. Uh, for us, we would say, well, maybe there are some difficulties, but, but none of those hinge on the central claim of the New Testament that Jesus was bodily raised from the dead. Amen and amen. And I really wish I had some of the Lord's beverage right now. I'm <laughs> out of tea. Cheers. Cheers. Uh, so now that we've we've looked briefly at why we believe that the New Testament Gospels are historically reliable uh, and that we should take supernatural claims seriously, let's talk about the historical probability of the resurrection. Uh, I don't think it's an overstatement to say that the relevance and truth of Christianity hangs on the reality of the resurrection. 
Right. And as the esteemed church father Clive Staples Lewis once said, (laughs) Christianity is a statement which, if false, is of no importance, but if true, is of infinite importance. The one thing it cannot be is moderately important. You know what? Uh, Somebody almost as famous as C.S. Lewis said something similar nearly 1,900 years earlier. Oh, who was that? Uh, this guy, you may have heard of him. His name was uh, the Apostle Paul. Oh, yeah. I basically did my entire master's on him. Yeah, I think I've heard of him. He's that guy who, at one time in his life, was a zealous uh, Jewish Pharisee who made it his mission to destroy the Jesus movement in the first century, and then, out of the blue, actually became a Jesus-following, Jesus-loving Christian, planted <laughs> churches all throughout the Mediterranean basin, and wrote more documents than were, that were eventually included in the New Testament than anyone else, right? My homie, that dude? Yep, that guy. Um yes. He said that if Christ hadn't actually been raised from the dead, then our faith is in vain. It's useless. It's empty. It's good for nothing. Thankfully, however, we think that when all of the evidence is considered, the best explanation is that Jesus really was raised from the dead. And so we are going now to present you with several pieces of evidence that lead us to that conclusion. We're going to start with the empty tomb. So Nick, why is an empty tomb so important to the believability of the resurrection? Well, let's say, for example, that after Jesus was crucified, which, again, is basically a universally accepted fact, even by atheist and agnostic historians like Bart Ehrman, um, Jesus' Jesus's disciples began saying that he had been raised from the dead. If the, religious, if the religious leaders and Roman officials wanted to disprove that fact, it would have been very, very easy to do. All they would have to do is produce Jesus' body. Uh, but there's no body to produce because all four Gospels have some version of the empty tomb. Okay, but that doesn't automatically prove that Jesus was resurrected, right? It just proves that there was no body in the tomb. I mean, his disciples could have paid off the guards and taken the body and hidden it somewhere, right? Right. I mean, the empty tomb alone doesn't prove the resurrection, but when it would have, but when it would have been the easiest way to disprove it, they couldn't do it. The, the Roman guards and, and all of them, they, they couldn't produce a body. And so we'll pretend this is a court of law, and we'll enter the empty tomb as Exhibit A. Exhibit B uh, would be the post-resurrection appearances. Right. So sometime after Jesus' crucifixion, all kinds of different people, including Jesus' disciples, began saying that they had seen Jesus alive. Okay, but once again, that doesn't automatically prove that he was actually resurrected. I mean, people claim to see loved ones who have died all the time. Um, I've never actually had that. Uh, I don't know anyone that has, but people do claim that. It's kind of weird. It's it's a common experience of grief, though, to be sure. Uh, it's true. As a matter of fact, when I worked as a, uh, as a hospital chaplain, I, I met with a woman who had told me that she had seen her recently deceased sister in her room that day. Hmm. Um, so it, it, it is a common phenomenon among people who are grieving loved, lost loved ones. But that's not what we see here. This is a little different. Um, first of all, people in the ancient world also experience grief in that way as well. We're not the first people to understand that that's how grief works. Hmm. Um, but the way that they talk about seeing Jesus, they talked about it differently. They talked about having long conversations with him and touching his body and eating breakfast with him on the beach. And this didn't just happen like as individuals, but in groups. 
Uh, as a matter of fact, this is exactly the argument that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 15, which he wrote probably less than 25 years after the resurrection. Here's what he says. He says, For I handed on to you, as of first importance, what I in turn had received, that Christ died for our sins in according with the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, which is Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Now, Nick, why do you think that Paul would mention that there were 500 people still alive who claimed to have seen Jesus? Well, probably for the same reason we use footnotes when we write academic papers. And why do we use footnotes? So people can check our sources, uh, and because we're too lazy to write more. Or if you're me, you're trying to be sneaky and snarky and slip something past the peer reviewer, which never happens. <laughs> okay, so to the first part, so people can check our sources. Mm -hmm. uh, in other words... Paul is saying, look, you don't believe me that Jesus was raised from the dead. Okay, here's a list of 500 other eyewitnesses. Go check with them, right? This isn't the kind of thing that you make up if you can't back it up. You don't say, listen, I've got a list of 500 people if you want to challenge me, if you don't have a list of people that they could go check with. So Paul is saying, hey... I've got some people, if you don't believe me, I've got a list of, I've got 500 other people who, who can verify what I'm saying, right? Not to mention also the fact that this is a, a massive display of disgrace if Paul can't back this up. Right. Like, this is, like, if you can't, you know, put your money where your mouth is, then you're going to look really bad. And you also may have the issue of sedition and treason to go along with, you know, general, like, social <laughs> disgrace. Um, but here we go. I'll play devil's advocate a bit more. But how do we know that they weren't just all in on some big conspiracy they they passed around you know the lsd and they were like yeah and then it'd be it'd be really cool if this were to happen right and that they all colluded together uh to steal jesus's body and spread this lie that jesus had been raised from the dead what if they did what if it's all just some big you know lsd inspired conspiracy which i actually heard a, a scholar once argue and no one agrees with him <laughs> okay if those were the only two pieces of evidence that we had, the empty tomb and, and these eyewitness appearances that might be a valid interpretation but that brings us to Exhibit C, which is the transformation of the disciples. So uh, according to documents that we call the Gospels, after Jesus was crucified, his disciples hid themselves in fear. That, of course, is a perfectly natural, reasonable response. Uh, they were rightly afraid that if their leader was killed, they might be killed too. That's usually what happens. You cut off the head and then you go for the rest of the body. So. Right, 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 right. Uh, and this by the way, is one of the reasons that we believe the Gospels are telling the truth. Uh, we talked about the criterion of embarrassment earlier, right? How we generally don't tend to make up stories about ourselves that make us look bad. Usually when we make up stories, we make up stories that make us look good. So these, these Gospel stories talking about how these disciples are cowering in fear, making them look bad, it, that indicates that they're probably telling the truth. It, it, it increases the likelihood that it's a true story. 
And not only that, it's not just the resurrection accounts. The disciples look like dummies throughout most of the Gospels. And so it's <laughs> one of those, true. like, it's not just they look bad here. It's like they look bad everywhere. And so it's like, you know, good job, Peter. You just, you, I always feel bad for Peter when people <laughs> preach on him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, so the disciples are hiding in fear for their lives. Then out of the blue, a little, I think it was over a month or so later, they're standing in the middle of Jerusalem exclaiming that Jesus had been raised from the dead and was going toe-to-toe. And they were going toe-to-toe with the very same religious leaders that were hiding in fear from just 40 or so days earlier. So, in other words, something happened that transformed them from cowering and hiding in fear to proclaiming passionately Jesus' resurrection in the temple. And they devoted the rest of their lives to proclaiming that message, and many ended up dying for it, like very painfully. People generally don't willingly die for something they know is a lie. Deception may make for a martyr, but self-deception doesn't make for a good martyr. People need people need to die for something that they believe is the actual, honest-to-God truth. I'm so, not going to die for something I convince myself is right. I need, I need to know that this is the truth, and it needs right. to be backed up with evidence. Right. You at least need to believe it's the truth, right? Yes. It, it may very well be a lie, but you don't know it's a lie. Because if you know exactly. it's a lie, you're not willing to die for it. Exactly. Um, do you remember Chuck Colson? Um, he, yeah, uh, he was a pretty prominent evangelical guy in the what, late 20th century or so. Uh, yeah, so what? Okay, uh, so he wasn't always a Christian. Oh. Um, as a matter of fact, we're not all always. Anyway, he before he became a Christian, he was special counsel to uh, President Richard Nixon. Who we, who we know is not a crook. He is not. <laughs> right, right, right. Not <laughs> yeah. a crook. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, so Colson, Chuck Colson, was actually a major player in the whole Watergate scandal. Uh, he actually ended up getting indicted and sentenced to prison. Um, I think he was. I think he was the first one in the administration to actually go to prison for the whole Watergate scandal. He was. He was that involved in it. Dang. Well, during that process, he was actually introduced to Christianity, uh, and he later explained uh, explained that it was the transformation of the disciples that proved to him that the resurrection was true. Here, here's the gist of what he said. This is a quote that um, tweeted out. I don't know if it's an exact quote from him, but it, but it explains his, his process. Here's what he says. He says, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. A st- strange thing, right, that Watergate proves the resurrection, but here's yeah, right. why. Uh, he's, he, he says, how? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead and then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true, he says. He says, Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. <laughs> You're telling me that 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. Hmm. Yeah, and these people had to have experienced something that actually convinced them that Jesus had been raised from the dead. They they really believed it, and it, it transformed them, their their whole lives. Um, this is especially true in light of the early Christian witness living in a world where Rome dominated everything, including the means of propaganda, including uh, the ancient everything, like the economy, the slaves, everything. And so you go from literally the, the nothings of the nobodies in light of 
the, the, the principalities and powers being in charge, and even they couldn't stop this. And so it's kind of like like the text of Scripture, Christianity was kind of a weed back then, and it just kind of kept blooming right into the Romans' backyard until it was in charge of everything a couple hundred years later. <laughs> oh, what a picture. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I think, the, uh, I think the conversions of James and Paul go along with this idea as well. Right, uh, James was Jesus's younger brother, um, and, and we know, according to the Gospels, that James was not a follower of Jesus during Jesus's ministry. Right, as a matter of fact, uh, we think James may have thought Jesus was kind of crazy, um, as you would if your brother said some of the things that Jesus said. Uh, James only became a Christian after the crucifixion. James only became a Christian after the crucifixion. Now, I have two younger siblings. And they like me well enough, but it would take something truly miraculous for them to believe that I was the son of God. Probably nothing short of resurrection from the dead would do that. (laughs) Um, Well, Paul tells us that Jesus appeared to James after he had been raised from the dead uh, James becomes one of the most prominent leaders in the early church. And so James's conversion, I believe, is evidence, at least it, it increases the likelihood that the resurrection actually happened. Hmm. And, and there's something also to be said about this. Um, you have the issue with Paul, right? He was a rising star in first century Judaism, destined for greatness, a real just intelligent guy. And his whole mission was to kind of destroy the early Jesus movement to kind of weed it out. Then out of the blue, he becomes its biggest offender and promoter. I mean, really? You, you go from, you know, biting the hands that feed you to being the hand? You know, something happened to make him do that kind of 180 turn. And, and you know, he tells us that he experienced the resurrected Christ. And, and we see this, too, and just as a, a side point. We see this in terms of moral transformation as well. You know, Peter's the guy that cuts off the dude's ear, and Jesus rebukes him and heals the guy. And Christian tradition tells us Peter went peacefully to his death. And Paul, you know, is seeking to kill people and ends up being the same guy that don't repay evil for evil. And so you see a moral transformation here as well, not just, you know, it's something where the, the early, I would argue, the early nonviolent impulse of Jesus transformed people who were otherwise, well, violent. And so th- that takes a lot, too. And so there's, there's this, this moral transformation uh, and the way Jesus treated women and how the early Christian communities treated women as well. And so you're seeing moral transformation happening here, uh, ethical transformation that basically said, despite what seems obvious to you, we live a certain way now because of Christ. And so, and, and being willing to die for that as well, I think is, is something, I mean, the, the American church, I think, could take to heart. Yes, yes, absolutely. So if we consider our evidence, right, our exhibits, we have... Uh, exhibit A, we have an empty tomb, right? They couldn't produce a body to disprove it. Exhibit B, we have a bunch of post-resurrection appearances, over 500. Um, and now exhibit C, we have these otherwise inexplicable social and moral transformations, people who go go from being cowards to boldly proclaiming this all the way to their death, these moral transformations. Uh, so we have all of these exhibits. Um and on their own, any one of these things could could be explained away by some other phenomenon. But when we put them all together, we consider them all together, the very best explanation is that Jesus really was raised from the dead. Uh, 
the world-renowned Bible scholar and historian N.T. Wright states it like this. He says, Though admitting it involves accepting a challenge at the level of worldview itself, right? Because people generally don't get up from the dead. So it, it involves <laughs> accepting a challenge at the level of worldview itself. He says, The best historical explanation for all these phenomena is that Jesus was indeed bodily raised from the dead. Okay, but so what? Excuse me? Well, so what? <laughs> the, the, let, let's say we grant that the Gospels are historically reliable documents, that uh, the text has been preserved faithfully, that the and that the bodily resurrection of Jesus is the best historical explanation for all the evidence. Uh, what does it all mean? Like, break it down for us. What does it all mean? You know, I'm so glad you asked that question. Uh, the way I see it, there are several major implications. First, if Jesus really was raised from the dead, then it stands to reason that everything he said was true, right? Uh, one, of my, one of my favorite preachers often says something like, if somebody can predict their own death and resurrection, I'm just going to go with whatever they say. <laughs> yeah, I could roll with that. Yeah, so he, he predicted this and pulled it off. Um, and so it, it, it stands to reason that everything else that he said was true. Uh, it, it, in other words, the resurrection of Jesus proves that Jesus really was who he claimed to be. Not only that, it proves that God really does exist and that God really is like what Jesus says God is like. This is a big deal. If Jesus really was raised from the dead, it proves that God exists and that God is like what Jesus said God is like. Not only that, it also means that what Jesus said about Scripture is true as well. In other words, and I'm going to say this twice, Jesus proves the Bible is true, not the other way around. Jesus proves the Bible is true, not the other way around. In other words, we believe the Bible is true because Jesus did. And if somebody can predict their own death and resurrection and pull it off, we go with what they say. And he believed scripture was true. And now we have um, epistem epistemic grounds for believing the same thing. Hmm. And not only that, too, you don't have a New Testament without the resurrection of Jesus. They don't have anything to write about unless he's raised from the dead. So Bingo. it's one of those things. You need a resurrection to have a New Testament. Um, and so in summation, we, we talked in this episode about the reliability of the New Testament and the Gospels, and specifically the, the centrality of the bodily resurrection of Jesus for the Christian faith. Um, we believe that we as, as Christians are, of course, to take questions and difficulties and issues like that seriously. And it's not as if we tie everything up with a pretty bow and it's all easy. Um, but even in light of such questions and, and things we have to wrestle through, we, we believe that scripture is reliable and trustworthy and faithful in depicting that Jesus rose bodily from the dead. And because of that, it, it, it really demonstrates what we said last episode, that when we start with a Christian theology, Jesus really is the best place to start. We don't have to start with God in the abstract. We don't have to start with the Bible in the abstract. We can start with the historical, historically reliable resurrection of Jesus. And then from there, we can work out a, a comprehensive theology of what God is like, beginning with Jesus. And so next time on the Synergist Podcast, we're going to be delving into the first of many episodes about Jesus. 
Uh, we finished up sort of our survey on, on God's words about the word of God. And in our next section, we're going to center on Jesus as a prologue to Christology. That is uh, what Jesus reveals to us about God. Or in other words, we're going to be talking about the word of God's words about God or something. There will be words about God and about God's word. Nick, help me. I can't stop talking about reading words way God. too much NT right. The words <laughs> about the word about words about God's words. <laughs> Uh, and if you're liking what we're doing here with this this podcast, uh, there are, of course, many ways you can help us out. You can, of course, become a patron at Patreon. Um, you can share our Why stuff. Why do you not have any trouble with that word? Uh, there are certain words I have a really tough time with, but for some reason, Patreon isn't one of them. I don't All know right, what fine. it is. Okay. Uh, and you can share our stuff with your friends and even your enemies if you feel safe in doing that. <laughs> uh, you can rate and review us on Facebook and iTunes. Uh, please give honest five-star reviews to balance out John Piper's one-star review. Um, we only have actually one. We have one one-star review on iTunes, so I'm willing to believe that's John Piper <laughs> because um, he he obviously listens, right? Of course, he's a big fan. Um, <laughs> and and you can also shout us out on Twitter, follow us on Twitter, Facebook. You can listen to us on Spotify. You can subscribe on iTunes. Um, this isn't a good Armenian sermon because we're one point away from affirming the five points, you know, because we got four points right here. But you know that'll do. Um, but whatever you do, like we, we appreciate. Yeah, we had to get one joke in there. Um, but uh, we we just want to say thank you for our our patrons. We want to say thank you to the people that like us, that our stuff on Facebook and Twitter and all these sorts of things. Like we're basically a bunch of like seminary nerds howling at the moon without you guys listening. So. Um, it's one of those things where it's really just been an absolute blessing to, to be able to talk with people and meet a few people through the podcast. Um, Thomas, you, you might want to, you had someone come up to you and talk to you about it and it's just a really cool thing for us to be doing. And we, we thank you for partnering with us, uh, freely of course. And, uh, yeah, we're, we're just, I'm, I'm just blown away that anyone's listening and my, like my mom doesn't even listen, but we have a ton of listeners. It's just really, it does blow me away. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I actually heard recently that even better than reviews are shares. Mm-hmm. Um, so if if you want to help us out, um, which we, we appreciate any help you want to give us, if you want to help us out, the the two best things you can do, pro- probably the best thing you can do is is share our content because the algorithms on Facebook and Twitter, right? They oh, it, it needs organic sharing. So if you just post it on on. You know, share our stuff on your on your pages. That's probably the greatest thing you can do. Uh, second to that would be um, uh, becoming a, a patron on Patreon um, and helping to underwrite some of the costs and allow us to devote a little bit more time and resources into this. Um, but anyway, uh, please let us know if, like Nick, you are giving anything up for Lent, or if, like me, you are just um, a heathen who's not. Um, <laughs> you know, Nick, for example, is giving up on fun. Um, so let us yeah, know. Yeah, it if... kind of feels like it. No meat. <laughs> like, uh, okay, funny story. I hate to interrupt. I, yeah, I, sure. I, I, we did a, a youth camp, uh, and so I went up with the youth and the youth pastor and all that, and I brought bacon and like high quality, like the best bacon you will ever have, kind of bacon. None of that store bought stuff. And so I went up there and we ate one pack of it, and I brought two packs, and I forgot about the other pack. And so the youth pastor, uh, his wife came up to me and said. Um, yeah, we have your bacon still. And I, I just basically made this point of, I'm not going to have any more meat. And she's like, we have your bacon at home. I'm going to bring it to you. Okay. I'm like, <laughs> and I'm like that. I'm just like, okay. Um, th- thank you. And it's literally God testing me. Like this is the, <laughs> this is the Abraham sacrificing his son kind of moment. It's like, ugh, do I have enough faith in myself and God to actually 
go through with this without eating the bacon. So yes, it will be, you're giving up on fun if you're giving up on meat and alcohol for Lent. I'm just saying, but hopefully uh, the spirit will do something fun with it. <laughs> so if, if you, like Nick, are giving something up, go ahead and let us know. Uh, once again, we're just we're so grateful for your your listening and your support and all of that. Once again, this has been uh, the Synergist Podcast, the most man-centered theology podcast on the internet by God's providence. Cheers, everyone. <laughs>